0: Welcome everyone to Neurology Exam Prep from Yale Neurology. Um, my name is Safa Abdul-Hakim. I'm a PGY3 Neurology resident, and I'm excited. Today we have uh, Dr. Fazayo, uh, a neuroophthalmologist at Yale, um, as well as Aaron Bauer. Um, Aaron is a PGY2, who you will be hearing his voice um, a lot more in the coming episodes. How are you guys doing?
1: Doing well. Uh, thank you for having me on the program.
0: I'm so excited. I've been waiting for this episode, Dr. Fazio. Thank you for joining us. Uh, so today we'll be talking about vision loss, uh, monocular vision loss. Um, we'll go through the anatomy. We'll go through the differential and the different pathways along the track where we could get monocular vision loss. Um, I wanted to see Dr. Fazio, if you would give us a general approach to how you would um, review the anatomy of the visual lo- localization.
1: So when evaluating a patient with vision loss, um, the first thing to consider is whether it's monocular or binocular vision loss. Um, but in general, when evaluating a patient with any neurologic problems, I find it very helpful to employ a schematic, um, which I call the where, what, why, how. The first thing is to figure out where the problem might be, where in the neurological axis, for example, Uh, the problem might be. So for example, when evaluating a patient with um, right leg weakness, um, one recognizes that the problem might be in the left cortex, left subcortex, um, left brainstem, right spinal cord, cervical, thoracic, or right nerve root, right peripheral nerve, and muscles in the right leg, right? Uh, Neuromuscular junction uh, and such. So Understanding that there might be different localizations for a problem uh, can be very helpful to the neurologist. And then, of course, once one understands where the problem might be, let's say it's a spinal cord problem, then you can ask yourself the question of what could be causing a spinal cord problem? Well, you can have an extrinsic compression, an intrinsic compression, inflammatory lesions, vascular lesions, et cetera. Um, and then why is this happening? Well, uh, a patient might have a, uh, ischemia to the spinal cord because of inflammatory disease, um, a vasculitis, for example, or a patient might have an inflammatory lesion to the uh, spinal cord because of a specific inflammatory entity such as multiple sclerosis or neuromyelitis optica or sarcoid, et cetera. Um, and then when we get into how does this work, uh, how does this happen? Well, that gets into the science of things. Um, the underlying uh, science of the pathophysiology. So I think it's really very important for not just learners, but even practicing uh, clinicians to have a system. And I think uh, this is a reasonably good system to uh, approach any neurologic problem, uh, because most neurologic problems are very strongly related to anatomic dysfunction. Specifically, as it regards vision loss, there is a very well-defined anatomic pathway for vision that all happens uh, above the neck. So just to go over it, um, the obvious thing is that we have our eyeballs, and within the eyeball itself, we have numerous structures, and these include first the cornea, which is a clear membrane. The cornea itself has a tear film uh, ahead of it, but behind the cornea we have the lens, and behind the lens, we have the uh, vitreous, which is now the posterior chamber. And then we have the retina. Specific to the retina, we have the macula, which is the center of the retina. And then we have the optic nerve, uh, posterior to the optic nerve. We have the optic chiasm where the fibers from each optic nerve crosses. And then we have the optic tracts. We have the lateral geniculate nucleus in the thalamus. Then behind that, we have the optic radiations, uh, which all converge uh, into uh, the primary visual cortex. So one one could have a problem in any one of these areas that would cause the perception of decreased vision. Now, specifically, when we have uh, vision loss in only one eye, the problem has to be before the optic chiasm. And so that could involve any problem within the eye structure the optic nerve um, or the retina. So anywhere within the eye structure, the retina, macula and optic nerve. Uh, That's where we would have uh, vision problems in just the one eye. Um, Vision problems in both eyes could include the same types of problems bilaterally. So eye problems bilaterally, optic nerve problems bilaterally, or it could include a problem in unilateral optic tract, lateral geniculate nucleus, optic radiations, or primary visual cortex, right? And then uh, that's the where piece of it, and then we can get into the what. What kinds of uh, etiologies could cause those types of problems? And I'll be happy to go into more of that um, if you'd like.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Very well said, and thanks for this overview. Um, So we we can go ahead and review pre-chiasmatic what's.
1: The pre-chiasmatic what? <laughs> All right. So I think for the neurologist, um, we tend to focus on optic nerve problems, um, but we don't learn much, at least I didn't, about the eye problems uh, as a resident. Uh, of course, being a neuroophthalmologist, I've had to become more familiar with those. But I'd like to give a primer on the types of eye problems that a neurologist might encounter and some kind of diagnostic clues Um, or examination uh, pearls. Um, So we'll start with the cornea, which is (laughs) really very interesting because it might uh, manifest problems that uh, might be mistaken for neurologic problems. So the cornea is a clear film, as we uh, mentioned, we all engage with our cornea in some way or the other. Uh, Some people put in contact lenses and have to almost touch the cornea to do so. Um, Some people have uh, dry eyes, some people have had um, some kind of corneal injury from uh, major or minor trauma. One thing to note is that because the cornea is clear, when there is a serious corneal problem, um, it's very difficult to look into the eye on ophthalmoscopy, okay? Common corneal problems, uh, probably the most common that we'll think about is uh, a problem called astigmatism. Patients love to say, it's my astigmatism. And I'm not sure if most patients know what that means, but what that essentially means is that instead of the cornea being a nice, smooth, convex shape, it's a little bit more bumpy. Uh, The convex is not as smooth. And so because that curvature is not uniform. Uh, It changes the way that light bends when it uh, uh, reaches the cornea. And uh, because it changes the way light bends, um, it changes the way light reaches the macula after bending at the cornea. So that's what astigmatism is. And of course, that problem can be fixed with uh, glasses or uh, more comfortably with uh, contact lens. If you take astigmatism to its extreme, um, which is that the cornea is bent irregularly, or it's bent uh, inappropriately, the extreme of that will be a condition called keratoconus. Kerato, keratin, uh, refers to skin and nails, and of course the cornea uh, is made of the same embryonic tissue as the skin and nails. So kerato in ophthalmology always refers to the cornea, and then cone uh, means that it's cone-shaped. See, instead of being smoothly convex, it, it turns into a cone. Um, and so basically, a advanced keratoconus looks like a peaked cone. And of course, this really changes the way that light bends. Uh, and these patients can be effectively blind in the more severe stages. As a neuroophthalmologist, ophthalmologist um, in many cases of unexplained vision loss, the answer has been keratoconus, uh, because this can be difficult to detect if one doesn't think about it. How would I see advanced keratoconus as a neurologist in, say, the general uh, clinic practice or in the uh, ophthalmologist? Well, the first thing is to say that keratoconus usually does not present suddenly. It's a progressive problem. And so the patient is not likely going to um, complain of sudden vision loss. The second thing is to say that when you had your uh, pen light and you looked at the cornea, not directly from the front, but from the side, if you were astute enough, you might see that it's peaked. Um, and the third thing is that when you were trying to do ophthalmoscopy with your uh, handheld direct ophthalmoscope, you would have a lot of difficulty um, seeing through to the back of the eye, and that's because you just can't refract enough, even when you use the dial to uh, to make it clear. And it's that same problem that has um, the patient that gives the patient difficulty looking out. Keratoconus. I, I, I say this because it's a good example. Of how an eye problem can cause severe vision loss, and um, and this can go undetected um, by even uh, ophthalmic practitioners if they're not really thinking about things properly,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, or if the patient, for example, complains of some other problem like headache, um, you know, then that confounds the issue. The headache being a red herring, for example. A more common corneal problem is really irritation or um, of the ocular surface of the cornea, and that's most often due to dry eye. Now, this can be confounding to the neurologist because these patients often have pain. And um, they have pain because the cornea is a very highly innervated structure um, being innervated by branches of the ophthalmic branch of the trigeminal nerve so much so that when uh, the eye has been dry for a period of time, that you get um, sensitization, a central sensitization of these uh, nerve endings, which can manifest as just eye pain or even headache. We do know from uh, many uh, microscopic studies that patients with chronic dry eye have neuromas at the corneal nerve endings. And this is even the case for patients with chronic migraine. Um, So there's corneal sensitization, central sensitization of the uh, nerve endings in the cornea related to chronic corneal irritation uh, and also related to migraine. The danger in this is that the patient can present with monocular uh, blurry vision, decreased vision, but also with pain. And for the neurologist, um, this triggers the heuristic of optic neuritis. Well, the difference is that this patient is not going to have a relative afferent pupillary defect, even if they have decreased vision, okay? And that's really very important. If you were to call on your ophthalmology colleague, they might be able to identify some findings suggestive of dry eye. I think those are the two things I'll say about the the two conditions that I'll say about the cornea here, one being the dry eye, most common with pain, and the other being the keratoconus, which is a progressive uh, decline in vision without pain, and uh, that can be monocular or binocular, uh, and even binocular could be asymmetric, so that it's worse in one eye.
0: That's a great overview of the cornea. Um, and I can definitely attest to the pain with the cornea. It's the worst pain. <laughs> People who got laser eye surgery, <laughs> really painful. Uh, indeed,
1: indeed. And and this goes for folks who, folks who have had um, some kind of trauma with their contact lenses will probably be able to attest to this as well.
0: Perhaps we would review the anterior chamber of the eye as well as the lens um, as we move backward, if that's a good time.
1: Yes, as we proceed uh, posteriorly from the cornea, we have the lens. Now the main issue with the lens will will be cataracts. And a cataract is essentially an opacification of the lens. Um, When a baby is born, the lens is perfectly clear. And as we get older, It um, opacifies very slowly so that um, there might be early cataracts in a 50-year-old. And by the time that person is 60, it's a little bit more dense. And maybe by 70, it's dense enough that it starts to cause uh, problems uh, with vision, particularly at night where they see halos and the light breaks up and um, they might feel like uh, they would benefit from cataract surgery. Now, there are three different types of cataracts, and the neurologist doesn't necessarily have to know these, but I will mention uh, something about these because there's one particular kind that can manifest uh, suddenly. So the most common type of cataract is the nuclear cataract, that is the opacification of the nucleus of the lens. A second type of cataract is the cortical cataract, um, so that we have spokes coming from the Outer portion of the lens. Uh, So that's a cortical cataract. And the third kind is the posterior subcapsular cataract. Uh, The ophthalmologist will say PSC. If you see PSC in an ophthalmologist, notice it means posterior subcapsular cataract. Now, this posterior subcapsular cataract is in the posterior part, that's the part closer to the optic nerve. And this is the type of cataract that can form very rapidly. I've seen patients who had normal vision on day one and by day 14 had uh, counting fingers vision uh, due to rapid progression of the posterior subcapsular cataract. And uh, what are some of the triggers for posterior subcapsular cataracts? The main one is trauma. Uh, Patients who has been involved in trauma, foreign uh, body to the eye, you know, baseball or whatever, car accident, door hit their head, they fell on the ground, they can, for whatever reason, develop a posterior subcapsular cataract very quickly so that the neurologist is seeing a patient who had trauma two weeks ago and now vision loss in the right eye. And again, the clue to diagnosis here is twofold. First, there is no relative afferent pupillary defect. And second, there is a decreased view or or potentially completely obstructed view into the uh, the ocular fundus when you're using the direct ophthalmoscope, okay? Mm-hmm. The mantra is, if you can't see in, the patient can't see out. So that when you're evaluating a patient with vision loss, I'm giving you some clues now that one clue is the view to the fundus, okay? Uh, because if you, can, if you have a good, cl- a good view to the fundus, you know that it's not a significant corneal problem and you know it's not a sig- significant lenticular or lens-related problem. Um, and now you're concerned about the retina and macular and optic nerve, okay? And then the second clue, so one is uh, view to the fundus, and then the second is the presence or absence of a relative afferent pupillary defect. So I think I already mentioned that a uh, corneal or lenticular problem, a problem related to the lens, uh, will not cause a relative african pupillary defect, okay? So cataract is the most common thing. There are other potential causes of vision loss due to lens problems uh, besides cataract. One of them is displacement of the lens, um, and this often occurs in the context of trauma as well. The lens may be displaced forward, that's anteriorly towards the cornea, or backwards, posteriorly uh, towards the optic nerve. And this kind of anterior or posterior displacement of the lens will will cause blurry vision for the simple reason that it changes what is called the axial length. That is the distance between the lens and the macula. And this is the reason why people wear glasses to begin with. A myope, uh, a nearsighted person or a farsighted person has a decreased and increased axial length uh, respectively. So if a uh, person with well-corrected vision develops a displacement of the lens, either forward or backwards, it's going to cause decreased vision. And that kind of decreased vision, however, can be corrected with refraction or with glasses. Okay. At least for diagnostic purposes, uh, this person's vision can be corrected in the ophthalmologist's office. Um, and again, this person does not have a relative afferent pupillary defect. Will the neurologist be able to detect that the lens is displaced anteriorly or posteriorly? Not necessarily. It may not be that obvious um, on a bedside examination. However, at the slit lamp, uh, it should be apparent. Um, Another type of displacement of the lens is uh, superiorly or inferiorly, more often inferiorly. And this has to do with laxity or damage to the zonular muscles, which are very small string-like muscles that hold the lens in place up and down. Classically speaking, we have the Ehlers-Danlos syndrome or some other connective tissue diseases in which this is commonly seen. But this can happen uh, in almost any condition, particularly in uh, following repetitive trauma. So I think those would be the two uh, lens problems that I would uh, mention here. Uh, one is cataract and the other is um, and the other is lens displacement. I should mention a third uh, as I talk, it comes to mind. I've seen patients uh, who, in the course of having um, severe hyperglycemia, have had decreased vision. and um, the mechanism for this is edema or swelling of uh, the lens or the cornea or both. Um, I recall a patient who I was managing for optic neuritis um, and we were not in the acute stage. We were in a pretty stable period following the initial onset. And this person presented with significantly worse vision in the affected eye. And um, fortunately, I was seeing him in the ophthalmology department and I was able to do some refractive techniques and we got his vision to improve from I think what was around the uh, 2800 range to about the 2030 range by looking through a pinhole. Uh, We'll talk more about this in a moment. And we knew then that he was not having a recurrence of optic neuritis, but rather some kind of optical problem. In testing his blood sugar, we got a blood sugar of about 500. When the blood sugar was corrected, his vision returned to a baseline of around 2030. The point being that there are some conditions, for example, hyperglycemia, that can cause swelling of the cornea or the lens, and that can cause decreased vision. And that can happen rapidly. That Mm -hmm. can happen very rapidly. And I think that's very important to note. A physiologic correlate to this, some women may be able to attest to this, is that during pregnancy, particularly in the second and third trimesters of pregnancy, Um, Some women can experience decreased vision in one or both eyes um, related to uh, corneal swelling, corneal edema. And that in those situations, the obstetricians are usually familiar with this, as are uh, most eye care professionals. And that's why in those situations, um, they would not replace their glasses because they recognize that it was physiologic or pregnancy related. And this tends to resolve uh, within I don't know, six to 12 weeks postpartum. So those would be, those would be co- uh, issues with the cornea or lens that I think are worth mentioning for the neurologist to note.
0: This would be a good time to talk about the vitreous chamber after you talk about the lens.
1: All right. So we've talked about problems that can cause vision loss relating to the cornea and the lens. Posterior to the lens, we have the vitreous chamber, um, the largest portion of the eye, The vitreous is a clear structure and it essentially has the consistency, if you will, of jello, so it's a clear jello and its only function is the bending of light, what we call, remember all light coming from the outside has to converge and reach the macula in a very, very fine beam. Now, a normally functioning vitreous is inert, but with aging and in some medical conditions, the vitreous can either degenerate, that is, break up, and have the uh, a less fine consistency, or in some pathologic conditions, the vitreous goes from being clear to containing debris, uh, which may include blood or white blood cells from an infection. So, the commonest cause of vision loss due to a vitreous problem will most likely be um, a vitreous hemorrhage. which can can occur in the context of severe high blood pressure or diabetes or anticoagulation, for example. What are the clues that the vision loss is caused by a problem in the vitreous? Well, the sudden nature can be a clue. Uh, For example, in vitreous hemorrhage, it tends to occur rather uh, quickly. And then uh, the patient might describe that this object uh, or this dark cloud is floating. Of course, that can be a symptom as well of a retinal detachments, that is a floating dark cloud within the eye. But generally, um, this does not occur with neurologic problems. Uh, an examination clue will be the absence of a red reflex. And I think this is a good point to talk about that because the red reflex is present when light from outside, in this case, uh, one's ophthalmoscope uh, is reflected against the back of the eye, the retina, and then reflected backwards to the view of the, uh, to the view of the examiner. So that's why it's called the red reflex. In reality, actually, it's usually yellow. Um, I remember once I was trying to teach a neurology resident to observe the red reflex. I said, I don't see anything red.
0: (laughs) Take things literal.
1: But uh, it turns out it's a yellow reflex uh, or an orange reflex, uh, point being that there's a reflex. And um, when there is an absent red or orange or yellow reflex, uh, it's basically black. So that in a person with uh, an opacity in not only the vitreous, but also in the cornea or the lens, one does not see a red or orange or yellow reflex reflex um and i think this is a very very good uh, examination point um on a number of occasions while um uh attending the general neurology service we've been asked to see a patient with vision loss in one eye and we go and say hi how are you let's take a look at your eye and the first thing is you look for the red reflex it's missing and uh, you find out that there's blood in the eye right in another case it was a cataract Um, I do remember as a resident, a PGY-3, I'm sure about this, we saw an individual who has a a pre-existing diagnosis of multiple sclerosis who had called, reporting vision loss in one eye, and um, when we examined him in the office, um, we found that the eye looked white, and no one could see through the back of the eye, and he had a fully formed mature cataract, and this was not optic neuritis. So, these patients will present to the neurologist either because they have a pre existing neurological condition or because the, they called and they were triaged as a, a potential neurologic problem. And so, the neurologist must be aware that there are causes of vision loss that are not neurologic um, and may include the cornea, the lens, and the vitreous. Examination techniques that will help to decipher whether this is a neurologic or non-neurologic problem will include the ability to perform ophthalmoscopy and view through to the back of the ocular fundus, the ability to detect a red reflex, and the ability to uh, perform the swinging flashlight test and identify a relative afferent pupillary defect when present.
0: Uh, Before I hand it over to Aaron, who is our co-host today, um, to talk about the retina, I was wondering if we can remind our listeners what a uh, a RAPD, a relative afferent pupillary defect, is, especially for our medical students that sometimes listen to our podcast.
1: Thanks. I think that's a very important point. And I uh, was hoping that we'll get to that a little later. Uh, Now's good, though. (laughs) So a relative afferent pupillary defect is the examination finding wherein light is directed in one eye and then in rapid succession into the other eye. A positive finding or a relative reference pupillary defect is said to be present when going from the unaffected to the affected eye, the pupil does not constrict but rather dilates. In other words, if the left eye has decreased vision, if we're, if we're encountering a patient with decreased vision in the left eye, and for the purposes of this conversation, we're going to say the patient has a left relative afferent pupillary defect, what would happen is this. The direct light response in the right eye would be brisk, would be normal. The direct light response in the left eye would be variably slow. Um, In other words, it can be brisk, it can be mildly uh, brisk, it can be mildly slow, or it can be very slow, depending on the degree of vision loss. But when we go from shining the light in the right eye, and we swing rapidly to the left eye, if we're observing very carefully in the left eye, we might see a dilation of the pupil. In the scenario where both visual systems were normal, that is the vision in both eyes was normal, swinging swinging quickly from the right eye to the left eye should cause no change in the pupil size. In other words, both uh, visual systems are detecting the same amount of light. And so there should be no change in the pupil size when swinging directly from the right eye to the left eye. So then this begs the question, why would there be a relative afferent pupillary defect? And um, we then have to talk about the uh, physiology of um, light uh, transmission through the visual system. And that involves the uh, function of the retina and the optic nerve. And I would like to get to that a little bit more uh, once we get past the point of the vitreous. So a patient would have a relative afferent pupillary defect when there is decreased light transmission through one eye as compared to the other. So let's talk about light transmission. The light goes, as we mentioned, from the external to the, through the cornea, the lens, the vitreous, and then hits the retina. When the light hits the retina, it first goes backwards into the photoreceptor cells. Those are the light sensing cells, and those are called the rods and the cones. This light signal is then transformed into an electrical signal and moves anteriorly from the photoreceptor's Through the bipolar and horizontal and amacrine cells, and then comes into the inner retina to the retinal ganglion cells. And this is the most important thing. The inner retina is the part most adjacent to the vitreous. You have the retinal ganglion cells. It's very important to know that these cells are the cell bodies of the optic nerves. In other words, the retinal ganglion cells in the retina is part of the neurologic system. The implication of this will be made clear in a moment. So then the light goes from the, as I mentioned, the photoreceptor cells through the intermediate cells, which are the horizontal cells, the bipolar cells, the amacrine cells, and probably some other cells that we haven't mentioned, go to the retinal ganglion cells, which are of interest to the neurologist, and then it's transmitted backwards through the optic nerve. Now, the retina has somewhere between 1.5 and 2 million retinal ganglion cells in the cone shape of the retina. All those retinal ganglion cells have one single axon that projects towards the center of the retina. And, these, and all these axons coalesce at one particular point to form a band, and that band we call the optic nerve. So the optic nerve is nothing except axons of all the 1.5 million or so retinal ganglion cells. And this optic nerve then goes backwards from the back of the eye through the orbit. And then both optic nerves meet at the optic chiasm. Uh, Chiasm is just a Latin word, I think, for crossing. And uh, the fibers cross. 47% uh, from the same side stay. 53% from the other side come so that in the left optic tract, the left optic tract will, be con- will consist of 47% of the left optic nerve fibers and 53% of the right optic nerve fibers. So it is somewhat asymmetric and there's a clinical implication to this as well. And so from the optic tract, then this uh, light signal will travel first. The light signal travels to about four or five different places. The first location for the light signal is going to the hypothalamus. This light signal does not have anything to do with the pupillary response, but rather informs the circadian rhythm. That's why your grandmother wakes up with the sunrise. (laughs) Okay, so that's the uh, circadian rhythm. Then another light signal uh, goes backwards through the lateral geniculate nucleus and then ends up in the primary visual cortex. That light signal is then converted to an image in the cortex that light signal does not do anything to uh, influence the pupillary response. Part of the light signal then goes to a third location, which is the pre nucleus. And that light signal itself does not have to do with the uh, visual response. And then a fourth uh, location for the light signal uh, before the endangered Westfall nucleus, the light signal goes to the superior colliculus. The light signal from the uh, superior colliculus pretectal nucleus area then splits or it projects bilaterally to the bilateral Edinger westfall nucleus. This is, this is the light signal that has to, that informs the pupillary size and the pupillary response. What do I mean by this? If you have a light signal that goes from the outside of the eye and ends up all the way back in the superior colliculus pretectal nucleus area, and then Projects to both endanger Westfall nuclei, the efferent portions of these will then ultimately end up in the iris constrictor muscle. And one and light shown into the right eye will ultimately cause constriction of both the right and the left pupil. I want to make sure folks get this. It's a complicated concept and perhaps more so in the absence of um, images that will yeah. help to describe this. So light that goes in, so we're talking about the pupillary response stroke uh, strictly now, light that goes into the right eye ends up in the dorsal midbrain, the back of the midbrain, the pretectal nucleus and superior colliculus area. Those signals are then projected bilaterally from say the right pretectal nucleus Projected to both the right and the left Edinger Westphal nucleus. And each of these Edinger Westphal nuclei send parasympathetic stimulation through the third cranial nerve, all the way forward, back to the orbit, to the ciliary ganglion. And then you have the short ciliary nerve that innervates the iris constrictor muscle and constricts both pupils. That is called the consensual pupillary response. And that is why uh, the pupils stay the same size. Let's problem solve for a moment here. If we completely transect the right optic nerve, that is to say that there is absolutely no light signal being transmitted through the right optic nerve. Light that will shine through the left optic nerve will still project ultimately to both Edinger Westphal nuclei and to both Iris constrictor muscles, and we will still have a normal consensual pupillary response when we shine light into the eye with a normally functioning optic nerve
0: like you said dr I don't think we can stress this enough this becomes really important to carrying forward with localization of um, this acute problem that we see as neurologists so just really quickly uh, light hits the cones transmits to the ganglion cells Um, all these uh, ganglion cells kind of come together merge together to form the optic uh, nerve I might not be as uh, sophisticated as you in describing it Um, but then we just need to say that this light will transmit all the way to several pathways. Some of them are the thalamus that can, um, Uh, regulate our our sleep cycle. Um, Some of them are uh, to the lateral geniculate nucleus and all the way to the cortex to to, to further translate into an image. But really what we need to focus on for the relative afferent pupillary defects is the uh, transmission to the superior colliculus. Um, And when it comes to the superior uh, colliculus, the light uh, signal will go to both bilateral Edinger-Westphal nuclei. And that's why you will have a normal conceptual uh, pupillary response if you have an intact optic nerve at that particular eye. Both eyes will constrict, and that's because you signal it to both Edinger-Westphal nuclei.
1: That is accurate. That is, that is accurate. And so I was going, I'm going to carry on and say that um, we'll take a case where um, the right optic nerve is completely transected, okay? Um, and so we shine light in the left eye and both pupils constrict because the efferent pathways are functioning properly. And, but when we shine the light in the left eye and both pupils constrict to, say, two millimeters, let's just say that, and we swing that light from the left eye to the right eye, now remember there's a completely transected optic nerve in the right eye, and so that pupil will dilate because there is no afferent signal. Uh, and then we'll shine the light back to the left eye and both pupils will constrict we are shining back to the right eye and that pupil will dilate because there is no light going through that right optic nerve. And that is the relative afferent pupillary defect. The, the relative afferent pupillary defect is very difficult to understand if we don't understand the consensual pupillary response. And that's why I spend a lot of time talking about that. There are four categories of problems that will cause a relative afferent pupillary defect. The first is a unilateral retinal problem involving greater than say one third of the retinal ganglion cells. This could be a retinal detachment. It could be retinal ischemia. It could be inflammation in the retina. Any number of problems within the uh, retinal ganglion cells will cause this. The second is a unilateral optic nerve problem. Remember that the optic nerve is only a projection of the retinal ganglion cells. So that uh, retinal ganglion cell pathology and optic nerve pathology are similar from that perspective. Third is a bilateral retinal or bilateral optic nerve problem that is asymmetric. So this is really very important because the R in relative afferent pupillary defect is relative, that is one eye relative to the other not person A relative to person B, but one eye relative to the other. So if a person has decreased optic nerve function in both optic nerves, but it's worse in the right eye, that individual will have a right relative affine pupillary defect. This is a very, very important point. And then the fourth category is a contralateral optic tract problem. So, four categories of anatomic problems that will cause a relative afferent pupillary defect. And for the purpose of this, to make it easier for our listeners, I'm going to say a right relative afferent pupillary defect. So, a right relative afferent pupillary defect or a relative afferent pupillary defect in the right eye will be caused by one, a problem in the retina of the right eye, two, a problem in the optic nerve of the right eye. Three, a problem in both eyes, retina or optic nerve, but which is worse in the right eye. And four, a problem in the left optic tract. Mm -hmm. And the reason why this is the contralateral optic tract comes back to a point I made earlier about the asymmetry of fibers that pass through the optic tract. You'll remember that I said the left optic tract consists of 47% of fibers from the left optic nerve and 53% of fibers from the right optic nerve. So it is more right than left optic nerve in the left optic tract, such that a lesion in the left optic tract will manifest more as a right relative afferent pupillary defect. So those are the four categories of problems that will cause a right relative afferent pupillary defect. Of course, the opposite is true for a left relative afferent pupillary defect. Now, having said that, it is very, very important, once again, to discuss that a relative affirmative pupillary defect is only relative, such that a person with severe vision loss in both eyes due to retinal or optic nerve problems might not have a relative afferent pupillary defect at all because they have equal loss of function of both optic nerves. For example, a patient with um, ischemia to both optic nerves from whatever condition, giant telateritis will do this. A patient with inflammation to both optic nerve from, say, neuromyelitis optica, this person will have no relative afferent pupillary defect. But this person might also have decreased Pupillary reflex, decreased direct pupillary reflex. In other words, when you shine light into the left eye, it only constricts from eight millimeters to seven millimeters, very slowly responsive or not responsive at all. Um, But that's something we can elaborate on in a different um, discussion. So to recap, we can have vision problems in one eye related to the cornea, lens, vitreous. Retina, macula, and optic nerve. The two clinical features that would be very helpful in sorting out whether this is an optical or neurologic problem. And by neurologic, we mean retinal or optic nerve, is the A uh, ability to view into the back of the eye, ability to look through the windows. Uh, because again, if you can see in, then the patient should be able to see out. That means the windows are clear. That is the cornea, lens, and vitreous. If one is able to look through to the back of the eye, um, then the problem has to be in the retina, macula, or optic nerve. Retinal and optic nerve problems should present with a relative afferent pupillary defect. So that would be the second clinical technique. We haven't said this, but problems in the macula can cause decreased vision. You can see in through the eye, but there is no relative afferent pupillary defect. So for those who are very eager, don't be too eager to say that the patient has non-physiologic vision loss because the patient may indeed have a macular problem. So up to this point we've discussed that in evaluating vision problems monocular vision loss that one has to be cognizant of the ability to look into the eye to view the ocular fundus which would help to exclude problems with the cornea and the lens and one has to evaluate for a relative afferent pupillary defect if one can view the ocular fundus and there is a relative afferent pupillary defect then one can conclude that the problem is either in the retina or the optic nerve. If however, one can look into the eye and there is no relative afferent pupillary defect, and we're sure that the vision loss is monocular, then we'll have to ask ourselves if the problem is not in the macula. Now the macula is a special part of the retina in the center of the retina, which is unique for one singular reason. It is the thinnest portion of the retina very thin so that there is direct uh, flow of light to the photoreceptor cells. But to make it so thin, it is missing one very important structure, which is the retinal ganglion cells. So there are no retinal ganglion cells in the macular. Therefore, a macular problem or, or vision loss due to a macular problem will present with a central scotoma that is central vision loss, but no relative afferent pupillary defect. Now, what kind of problems happen in the macula that a neurologist might encounter? Um, I'm reminded of two such patients I've seen within the last six months, um, who both had neurologic histories and ended up with vision loss in one eye. And um, the original thought was that they might have optic neuritis or some other neurologic problem, but they both ended up having macular problems. So the first common enough macular problem that one might see that could occur acutely is a condition called central serous serous retinopathy. And um, that's a lot of words for saying that there's swelling in the macula underneath the fovea. This tends to happen in young males. The reason is not very clear, but interestingly, uh, most of these individuals have been found to be uh, high high anxiety type people, uh, type A, <clears throat> and um, this is in the literature, um, although the reason for this is not clear. Macular edema is more often encountered in patients with diabetes, very, very common. Macular edema can be observed in other inflammatory conditions, uh, infectious or inflammatory conditions, um, be it lupus, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, and um, several other conditions. On a more chronic basis, uh, maculopathies or macular dystrophy can occur in the setting of long-term use of hydroxychloroquine or some other medications. And of course, there are genetic uh, causes of macular dystrophy, which can present with apparent suddenness in an adult. So I think that that's a important differential diagnosis to make when we're evaluating a patient with painless central vision loss without a relative afferent pupillary defect. And this is important because the neurologist is trained to think about optic neuritis and rightly so. But if you're seeing a patient who looks like they might have optic neuritis, but there are two features missing, one, you've checked very well and they don't have a relative afferent pupillary defect. And two, there was no pain. You must consider the possibility of a maculopathy. Um, And this is not something that you would necessarily be able to diagnose in the hospital, but um, your ophthalmology colleagues can help you with making this diagnosis on ophthalmoscopy or with um, some ancillary uh, imaging, um, which will not be the subject of this lecture. But um, the optical coherence tomography um, can be very useful in making that diagnosis.
2: So now that we've talked about most of the, you know, pathology anterior to the retina, I think, you know, one question that we want to talk about a little bit more in detail, if you can, just some of the what's that we can think of for the retina.
1: There are three general etiologies of disease in the retina that the neurologist might concern himself or herself with. The first is detachment of the retina. This is really very important because most neurologists are unable to do a good ophthalmoscopic examination. Um, for a couple of reasons. First, because the direct ophthalmoscope does not give a very good uh, or a very wide view to the retina. And uh, second, because um, in many cases, unfortunately, um, the neurologist is not as comfortable with performing ophthalmoscopy um, as perhaps they would like to be. So uh, being aware at the very least that you might be encountering a patient with a retinal detachment uh, is useful because then Uh, you might then call for assistance uh, from your ophthalmology colleagues. Um, Retinal detachments tend to most often occur at the retinal periphery where the ophthalmoscope, the direct ophthalmoscope anyway, um, cannot view. Um, So this is really very important. Um, The second category of disease uh, will be ischemia of the retina. And um, retinal ischemia can occur in various uh, ways. Um, it will be important to go over the anatomy um, of the perfusion of the retina, but essentially, the what uh, what can cause retinal ischemia uh, could include embolism from a proximal source. Proximal being either the carotid artery um, or the heart uh, or it, or the heart valves, um, and I should include there the aortic arch. Okay, so an embolus can travel from a heart chamber, a heart valve, the aortic arch, or the carotid artery, and um, end up in the eye uh, through the central retinal artery or the branch retinal artery. Retinal ischemia can also occur due to a local effect, that is uh, inflammation of the local retinal vessels, what we might call arteritis or vasculitis within the retina. Um, underlying causes of these could include giant cell arteritis and many other arteritides, um, some which are named and others which aren't. Um, many inflammatory diseases can cause retinal arteritis or retinal vasculitis as well. Retinal ischemia can also occur uh, not from arteritis or embolism, but from hypoperfusion of the retina, which is that uh, a person has, for example, a fixed stenosis of the carotid and decompensates for one reason or the other. Uh, The blood pressure goes down and then you have a decreased perfusion through that carotid. Um, The ophthalmic artery is the first branch of the carotid artery um, and it divides into the central retinal artery and other other perfusional uh, arteries. And so uh, retinal ischemia can occur um, in that context. Then um, another cause of at least transient uh, retinal ischemia would be the entity of uh, retinal vasospasm, which ought to be a diagnosis of or, or, which ought to be a diagnosis of exclusion, uh, because it is very difficult to prove uh, between events. Um, If this were to occur during an event, um, one might see narrowing of the retinal arteries during the episode of vision loss. I did mention that the ophthalmic artery is the first branch of the carotid artery. The other four branches being the posterior communicating artery, anterior choroidal artery, anterior cerebral artery, and middle cerebral artery. From the ophthalmic artery, comes the central retinal artery, which goes through the optic nerve, enters into the eye, and then divides into a superior and an inferior branch. So you have the uh, superior uh, division of the central retinal artery and the inferior division of the central retinal artery. The superior retina, the inner retina, remember we have the retinal ganglion cells there, subserves vision in the inferior visual field, everything's flipped, right? So the superior retina subserves vision in the inferior visual field and vice versa. So that if one has a branch retinal artery occlusion to the superior retina, they would have an inferior visual field defect. Okay. And then, uh, and vice versa for the, uh, for ischemia to the inferior retina. Now, if one, has a, if one has an occlusion or embolus to the central retinal artery before it branches off into the superior and inferior divisions, they would have what is called a central retinal artery occlusion. The hallmarks of a central retinal artery occlusion uh, would include severe vision loss, um, the patient might have reported some flashes of photopsias preceding the vision loss. Um, and it's painless. This is very important. Uh, it's often very sudden. On ophthalmoscopy, the hallmark classic findings would include three things. The first is whitening of the infarcted areas, that is due to cytotoxic edema of the retinal ganglion cells. You see, we have to remember that we have these neurons, they swell, and because they swell, one then cannot see through the neuron um, to the to what's called the retinal pigment epithelium. So the reason that the ocular fundus appears orange or yellow or red, um, depending on what you're looking at, is because the cellular layer is so thin and below the cellular layer in the outer retina is the retinal pigment epithelium, which as it, as it says in its name, contains pigment. So you can see through these transparent cells to the retinal pigment. Now, if you have an infarct of the retinal ganglion cells in the innermost portion of the retina and those retinal ganglion cells develop cytotoxic edema and they swell well, they're no longer transparent and you can no longer see the epithelium. So the retina appears white, um, although it really isn't. Now, in a central retinal artery occlusion, the entire retina, or at least most of it, appears white except for the portion of the retina that does not contain retinal ganglion cells. And that portion of the retina is, as we mentioned earlier, the macula. The macula does not contain retinal ganglion cells. And so in the central retinal lateral occlusion, whereas the entire uh, retina is swelling um, and becoming white or appearing white on ophthalmoscopy, the center of the retina, the macula remains red because you're able to see through to the uh, pigments. And this is what is called the cherry red spot.
0: I don't think I ever understood really what a cherry red spot meant. (laughs)
1: Exactly. So that's what a cherry red spot is. Now, a cherry red spot does not only occur with uh, central, central retinal artery occlusion. It can occur in a number of other metabolic diseases that affect the uh, retinal ganglion cells. Again, remembering that the retinal ganglion cells are neuronal cells. They're part of neurons. <laughs> um, and so the one that comes to mind uh, right away is Tay-Sachs disease. And, um, and I'm trying to remember, I think one of the neiman pick diseases can, can uh, occur with a um, cherry red spot as well. Um, so that's a central retinal artery occlusion. With a branch retinal artery occlusion, of course, we have retinal whitening as well, but that's only occurring in a branch uh, of the uh, superior or inferior uh, division of the retina and causing a corresponding superior or inferior altitudinal visual field defect. Causes of central and branch retinal artery occlusions I mentioned earlier could include embolism, uh, but one has to always be concerned about giant cell arteritis, particularly in the generally speaking over 50 years of age cohort uh, who may have other symptoms, headache and jaw claudication and diffuse weakness, etc. In reality, most of these individuals are much older than 50, uh, typically older older than 70. And um, uh, difficult as it is to say, many of them don't have all of these other symptoms. So much so that in an individual with retinal ischemia, central or branch retinal artery occlusion, one must do a stroke workup. Okay, just the way you would do for aphasia or any other kind of uh, stroke, CT angiogram of the head and neck, MRI of the brain uh, to look for uh, silent emboli, uh, echocardiogram, telemetry, and maybe even uh, extended cardiac rhythm monitoring. Uh, Because a retinal ischemia, central or branch retinal artery occlusion is a stroke because the ophthalmic artery is the first branch of the carotid artery. And so this is a stroke. And uh, you just have to think that way as a neurologist. In addition to the general stroke workup, most of these individuals, um, as you know, are going to be older. And so an ESR and CRP must be obtained to evaluate for giant cell arteritis. A person with a central or branch retinal artery occlusion, uh, ischemia to the inner retina with an elevated ESR must be treated as giant cell arteritis whether or not they have other symptoms, jaw claudication, headache, et cetera, if the ESR and CRP is elevated, uh, because one would then lose a uh, window uh, of opportunity for treatment. Um, We have seen patients with uh, retinal ischemia uh, who then developed uh, vision visual loss in the other eye, uh, and this can occur within days to a couple of weeks. And um, unfortunate as it is, this is irreversible. And so the if one is going to make an error in managing this patient, it should be to do too much earlier, obtain the temporal artery biopsy. And if it's negative, then one might consider um, doing something else. Um, But I think those would be the two key points about inner retinal ischemia. That is stroke workup, ESR and CRP. Of course, the ESR and CRP will be back within a couple of hours. And so, you know, um, one will then be informed about how far to go with the remainder of the stroke workup. Um, But a CT endogram of the head and neck is a must because there might be a plaque or something else like that there that would be amenable to management. Other causes of retinal ischemia, as I did mention, would be um, decreased blood flow to the outer retina the outer retina, which contains uh, the photoreceptors. And this can be a bit more complicated, uh, particularly in the inpatient or neurologic setting. Uh, but hypertension or severe hypertension is one potential cause for that. And um, retinal vasculitis, that is inflammation of the retinal veins, not so much the arteries. So giant arteritis is an arteritis of the retinal arteries. But uh, inflammation of the veins can cause um, decreased blood flow to the Outer portions of the retina. And um, this is best evaluated by something called a fluorescent angiogram, um, which is of course um, not readily available in the inpatient setting, uh, but is available in most ophthalmologists' offices. Um, manifestations of um, outer retinal ischemia uh, often include um, positive color visual phenomena, which we'll call photopsias or phosphenes. A patient might experience flashing lights, or they might experience blobs of lights, like a uh, like a lava lamp or something like that. Um, when it's unilateral and um, the patient is sure that it's unilateral, I think that's an important point. Um, one must consider outer retinal ischemia, and again, uh, I would be looking for giant cell arthritis first. Um, And if we don't find anything in the inpatient setting, for example, I would be recommending to the ophthalmologist to um, consider doing a fluorescent angiogram. The other uh, vascular issue with uh, relation to the retina would be occlusion of the central retinal veins. So CRVO or central retinal venous occlusion. Um, This usually presents as very enlarged and tortuous retinal veins. Often there can be swelling of the optic nerve because of congestion and um, decreased drainage uh, through the ocular fundus. And when it is more severe, um, there can be uh, not only swelling of the optic nerve, but uh, hemorrhages within the eye and uh, ultimately an infarction. Because um, like in any other uh, arterial venous system, if the venous pressure becomes high enough, um, there will be uh, decreased blood flow through the arteries uh, because there's not enough um, downward gradient, uh, pressure gradient for blood flow. So a central retinal venous occlusion uh, manifests, as I mentioned, with enlarged retinal veins, swelling of the optic nerve, hemorrhages through the eye, uh, the so-called blood and thunder appearance, and ultimately retinal infarct- infarction what causes a central retinal venous occlusion? Well, the neurologist would think uh, about vascular problems and come to the conclusion that a a cavernous sinus thrombosis or a superior uh, orbital vein thrombosis or superior ophthalmic vein thrombosis will cause a CRVO and they would be correct. Um, More commonly, however, uh, central retinal vein occlusions are seen in the context simply of uh, diabetes or severe hypertension and um, nothing uh, else. Of course, with uh, retinal ischemia due to arterial occlusions or venous occlusions, one must always consider hypercoagulable states um, as a cause. I think one more thing I should mention about unusual causes of retinal ischemia is the entity called Sussac syndrome. Sussac syndrome is an arteriopathy, some would say uh, arteritis, but I think it's more commonly considered an arteriopathy. We don't know that it's inflammatory for sure, um, but it involves small arteries. Uh, It's a triad of retinal ischemia, um, deafness due to ischemia uh, of the labyrinth through the anterior inferior cerebellar artery, and encephalopathy. Um, On imaging uh, brain MRI, the classic finding is white matter changes in the body of the corpus callosum, and these will be large sort of fluffy white matter changes. Um, There really aren't that many diagnostic tests other than the syndromic appearance, which is the retinal ischemia, deafness, and encephalopathy. Um, and the diagnosis can be enhanced uh, with fluorescent angiogram that can have some classic findings. Treatment is often empiric with um, immunotherapy. This most effective immunotherapy is not yet clear, but um, the, uh, rituximab or monoclonal antibodies such as rituximab and uh, IVIG can be employed.
0: Uh, That does come up on the in-service examination. So thank you for covering that.
1: The potential causes of optic nerve problems is very wide. And I think we'll be best left for a dedicated topic. I'll be happy to join you for that. But I will say that since we're already talking about giant cell arteritis, um, or can I go backwards and say with regard to ischemic optic neuropathies. Um, We already talked about the anatomy of retinal perfusion from the central retinal artery to the branch retinal arteries. Um, On the other hand, the optic nerves are not perfused by the central retinal arteries. Rather, from the ophthalmic arteries come these long uh, posterior ciliary arteries that go to the front of the eye and do all the front of the eye stuff. And closer to the back of the eye, we have this, co- this short posterior ciliary arteries. The short posteri- posterior ciliary arteries perfuse the front or the head of the optic nerve, whereas the body or the orbital portion of the optic nerve is perfused by a different set of um, branches, which are really unnamed, but these are just perforators throughout the course of the optic nerve. This is incredibly important because the perfusion of the optic nerve occurs through arteries that are so small that optic nerve ischemia does not occur through embolism. It can occur through hypoperfusion, global hypoperfusion. Um, It can occur through arteritis, such as giant cell arteritis, but an embolus would be much too small to get through those very short, very small, narrow, short posterior ciliary arteries. Of course, an embolus large enough to lodge in the ophthalmic artery is going to cause ischemia to all the distal structures, including the optic nerve. So therefore, what are the mechanisms of optic nerve ischemia? Well, we mentioned giant cell arteritis as a small, which is a uh, medium to large vessel arteritis, but does uh, affect the optic nerve. It can cause um, ischemia of both the anterior optic nerve and the posterior optic nerve. Hypoperfusion um, as might occur in a, for example, cardiac arrest or something of that nature. Uh, can cause ischemia to the optic nerves, uh, classically to the posterior optic nerves. Um, At this point, I think it's worthwhile talking about the designation of anterior versus posterior optic nerve or bulbar versus retrobulbar optic nerve. When you see the Terminology anterior optic nerve, we're talking about the front of the optic nerve, which is the portion that can be seen on ophthalmoscopy. So the optic nerve head or the optic disc or the anterior optic nerve, these are all the same thing. An anterior optic neuropathy is an optic nerve problem where you see swelling of the optic nerve. That's it. Okay. A posterior optic neuropathy is an optic nerve problem. Where there is no swelling of the optic nerve, which means the problem must be behind the eyeball, behind the globe or retrobulbar or posterior. These are all saying the same thing. Um, and so anterior optic neuropathies uh, can occur for many of the same reasons as posterior optic neuropathies. It's just that when you're examining the patient, you have a patient with vision loss in the right eye, there's a large relative, af- right relative afferent pupillary defect, the retina appears normal, it's not detached. There's no uh, retinal whitening. So you know the problem is in the right optic nerve. But the optic nerve appears normal, it's not swollen. So you say the patient has a retrobulbar right optic neuropathy or a posterior right optic neuropathy uh, because you know that they have all the clinical features of an optic neuropathy, but the optic nerve is not swollen. Um, On the other hand, if they have all the features of an optic neuropathy in the right eye and the optic nerve is swollen, you'll say they have a right anterior optic neuropathy. Um, So the um, terminology can be useful when you're reading the literature.
2: So thank you, Dr. Fazio, for talking with us about monocular vision loss. I really appreciate you taking the time. I think we really had a great discussion about the anatomy all the way from the cornea to the optic nerve. And I think the review of the relative afferent pre defect, will be something that'll be really helpful moving forward. And this has really given me a framework about how I can approach monocular vision loss. I appreciate you talking about, you know, specific pathologies and from the cornea, the lens, the vitreous chamber, back to the retina. And I look forward to chatting about you more with the optic neuropathies and some more specifics.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for having me. I'll be happy to join you for another topic.